Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, very brief housekeeping here. Once again, my meditation app is available at wakingup.com. And if you're using the app and finding it valuable, your reviews are incredibly helpful. Please leave those in the App Store or in the Android Store. And any reports about bugs, please send directly to wakingup.com. We are continually fixing those and pushing new updates. So please make sure you're using the latest version. My major priority for this year is to make the Waking Up course as good as it can be. So thank you for all the feedback. Today I'm speaking with Sally Sattel. Sally is a practicing psychiatrist and lecturer at the Yale School of Medicine. She's an expert on addiction, and she focuses on mental health policy as well as political trends in medicine and psychiatry. And her most recent book is Brainwashed, The Seductive Appeal of Mindless Neuroscience, which she wrote with Scott Lilienfeld. Anyway, we talk about addiction. We discuss the opiate epidemic and the significance of fentanyl. We talk about PTSD. We cover the intrusion of politics into medicine. We also talk about the ethics of organ markets, the buying and selling of organs. Anyway, fascinating conversation. This is one that I hope will be of practical use to anyone who either has suffered from addiction or knows someone suffering. There were a few connection and latency issues that you'll hear, but um, nothing too terrible. This is what happens when you do these interviews remotely. In any case, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Sally Sattel. So, uh, so Sally, I, so you, you were uh, recommended to me by our mutual friend, Steve Pinker. It was a fulsome recommendation of, of your expertise on, on many topics that we're going to touch. Uh, and here you are. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks to Steve Pinker. Obviously a great fan of his and, and yours. I'm a longtime podcast listener. So, yeah, so you were reminding me, we met at one of those uh, Beyond Belief conferences at the, the Salk Institute back in, in 2006 or so? Uh, yeah, I think it was more like 2009. It was quite a while ago, oh. and uh, yeah. it, it, was, uh, it, was very, it was very interesting. I think I was writing a book at that time with Scott Lilienfeld on um, the promise and peril of neuroscience in the, in the public square. So, so that mm-hmm. was very that was a very important meeting for me. Actually, I I learned about a lot of people's work there, and I was familiar with yours. But I heard your your talk, and I remember I spoke on since I'm a clinician, I'm a psychiatrist, so I I try to stick with clinical matters and see most things through that lens. You know how 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 brain science, how junk science, all you know refracts through a through a clinical lens. So I spoke about post traumatic stress disorder. And mm. uh, and how it is both how it's both a product of of a brain and mind. In other words, you know, mechanism, which is brain function, but uh, and meaning. And that in my field, I think we we've tended to be a little reductionist about it and see it largely through the lens of of anxiety, of, of uh, a fear response that hasn't extinguished after the stressor has gone away, which is to me the essence of, uh, you know, of continuing fear. And that's very highly legitimate. And uh, of course, one of the best therapies is exposure therapy, which, which touches on that mechanism. But there is so much more to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in terms of 
in terms of what what keeps it alive for people. And that that often mm. has to do with uh, meaning. So so that was my yeah, well, yeah, I, I want to talk about that. I mean, there, there are many intersecting issues here with addiction and the opioid epidemic and PTSD. And so I, I want to dive into all that. But, but first, more generally, how do you view your work as a psychiatrist? Because you're, you're sort of at the nexus of clinical work on these various fronts, but also you comment on the politicization of science and medicine, and you, you, you have been, um, there's kind of a, a, to some degree, a culture war component to what you've been doing. So how, how do you summarize the, your approach to psychiatry yeah. at the well, moment? Well, very much there is a, a, a culture war component. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote a book back in 2001 called PCMD, How Political Correctness is Corrupting Medicine. And uh, and then I collaborated with Christina Off Summers in 2005 on a book called One Nation Under Therapy. And both of those books had a very, a very thick thread of politicized science or even junk medicine. And in fact, in a way, so much of it comes down to exp- the critiques often came down to explanatory reductionism. And and as an addiction psychiatrist, that's my main field. And I do work. I do work part-time in a methadone clinic. I've done that for about 20 years. And this year, I'm, I'm, I'm actually spending the year in a small town in Ohio trying to understand the, I even call it an addiction epidemic at this point, not just an opioid epidemic, in a, in a small town compared to an, to an urban area. And there are lots of interesting differences we can talk about. But the overarching, I guess, almost everything I've, I've written uh, has to do with some sort of uh, perversion of, of the data or some sort of questionable interpretation. And so I, I would just give you an example. Um, take, take, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, since I brought that up. And a, a reductionist approach, and not, in, not an incorrect one, but just one explanatory level would be at the level of the amygdala, at the level of neuroscience. And, uh, and it's, it, I'm not saying it's illegitimate at all. It's, it's, it's very real. It's very true, but it's just one level. And when you reduce things to one level, we do that in addiction as well. Now, the dominant view of addiction is that it's a, a brain disease. And anytime you reduce things to one level, it's, it's obviously a precursor to oversimplification. And when you're in the clinical world and policy world, that's usually a recipe for a bad policy. Uh, and it's also a, a recipe for politicization because it, it, can fo- it can foster a victim narrative because someone, if there is a certain level of explanation that uh, can be traced back to a perpetrator, then it becomes a victim narrative. And anytime, again, there's someone to blame, and in the case of, of the opioid crisis, much, there's been much focus on, of course, the pharmaceutical companies, and I do think they bear some responsibility, don't get me wrong, but it also is very much uh, fits into to, to, to litigation. So, mm-hmm. um, but of course, as a clinician, I'm most concerned with how it, how it may undermine the best kind of care. So pretty much everything I've written about, yeah, it, it goes to these kinds of oversimplifications and what's being left out. Now we have to be more nuanced. Right. right. So let, let's start with addiction because it is obviously an enormous problem and many people listening to this podcast will either have some firsthand experience with it 
themselves or know somebody suffering with some version of it. What should we understand about addiction at this point? So I should reference another podcast I did, which um, I don't know, you may have heard. Do you, yes, do you know Johan sure. Hari, the, the yeah. journalist? So he's written a couple of books, uh, one on the war on drugs and addiction, Chasing the Scream, and the other um, on depression. Yeah, Lost Connections, yeah. You know, he came on the podcast and, you know, he, he's, a, yeah. he's a great speaker and a very interesting guy. But, you know, he's taken a line through both of those topics that seems to de-emphasize the role of biochemistry and, you know, the disease model, certainly, of addiction, and puts the blame far more on the lack of meaning and lack of connectedness that, that someone may experience in their life. And uh, he draws a lot of motivation from a few experiments. One is famously described as, as the right. uh, Rat Park experiment, which uh, yes. you probably know about. So in the aftermath of that podcast, I received some angry pushback from people who you know, didn't like that line at all. And, and I mean, in, in Johan's defense, he doesn't actually discount the role of biochemistry, but if you get him talking, he can certainly mm -hmm. seem to. My one, one question off the top is, is there much daylight between your view of addiction and the one he's putting forward? And whatever your view is, what do you think people should understand at this moment yeah, about addiction? I, I think there's a little daylight. I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, I think one could walk away from his excellent work. I, I admire him very much, but you could walk away from that with a uh, perhaps an undue emphasis on the uh, the cultural, social, psychological dimensions. However, I think that, um, and I refer to say my profession or the addiction field, has over-medicalized addiction. And I, I don't uh, say that as, as someone who is not in thrall to the technology of brain imaging, but uh, I, I think we have, uh, I think we have, over-medicalized it to the point where we put too much emphasis on the, I'll call them anti-addiction medications. People call it MAT. And I'm referring there to methadone, buprenorphine, and then there's another medication, naltrexone, which is an opioid blocker. These are all excellent medications, and I use them every day. I mean, I prescribe them. And it, occasionally, there is a patient who gets on methadone, and I would say he would fit the classic medical model, which is to say that addiction is something almost imposed on you. Even we call it a person with substance use disorder. And I realize in medicine, we have to, we have to give things shorthand names. But he, I even cringe sometimes when I hear that because it makes it sound as if it's something that happened to you. And addiction is, is a, a very intricate and, and uh, deeply personal kind of affliction. So, for example, basically I see things on a large spectrum. And I, as a clinician, you take people as individuals. But occasionally I'll see a person who says, all I need is the methadone and I'll be fine. And usually that's not the case. They're on the methadone. So what does that mean? Methadone, of course, is, a, is an opioid replacement. It's a, it's a um, synthetic uh, opioid. Actually, can you, can you remind people, why is the transition from heroin or another opiate to methadone advantageous at all? I mean, why is it given sure. as a treatment? Well, if one is abruptly withdrawn or one loses supply to, to opioids and they've been on it chronically and, uh, you know, on a substantial dose for a while, even though some people 
low doses can even precipitate withdrawal when they stop it abruptly. And that's basically just your body, which is already adapted. There's been neuroadaptation to the to the chronic exposure. And so there's a withdrawal syndrome. And it can be very intense, extremely intense, to the point where some people will continue using drugs just to just to avert the withdrawal. It's uh, people feel extremely ill. It's been called the worst flu you've ever had. Nausea, vomiting, shakes last about 72 hours at its worst. And then it's over in about a week. Some people have have documented what's called a protracted withdrawal syndrome, which is sort of a low-grade withdrawal, which could go on even for months. And uh, so it's it's highly destabilizing. And you can't break the cycle. A lot of people can't break the cycle on their own. I should add, many people do, and clinicians don't see them. But the folks we see, obviously, have a very hard time stopping drugs on their own. So to suppress the withdrawal symptom, there's this replacement opioid. It's called methadone. And buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, methadone is a full agonist of the mu receptor, will suppress the withdrawal. And it also suppresses craving. So as you can imagine, that's an excellent way to break the cycle and stabilize someone. For most people, it's not enough. It's uh, necessary, but it's far from sufficient. They have so much repair work to do. Not only do they have to repair all the damage to their life that was done while they were addicted, you know, all the bridges they've burned, all the relationships they've destroyed, all the jobs they may have lost, the reputation, the health. There is also the problem of what predisposed them to using in the first place. And this is where I'm very much with Johan in uh, saying that um, most, but not all, but most people I've treated, most addiction memoirs, I've, well, all addiction memoirs I've read, talk to a kind of psychic, profound psychic distress. It often takes the form of, of self-loathing as one of the most prominent themes, but other people want to repress painful memories. Some people, I think, just should have been on a better dose of Prozac or something else because they're using it to deal with anxiety and depression. And sometimes a, a conventional medication can be what they need. But other times it's a more existential uh, kind of lostness. And these drugs really help. They really, they really do. And sometimes they're a very good, you know, they're just a good numbing agent. In fact, I refer to them as oblivions. I mean, you've heard of stimulants and depressants, and I have a new class called oblivions. And that's what, um, in fact, that's what morphine is, right? It's Morpheus, I mean, from the god of Morpheus, who who lived by uh, the river, I'm going to mispronounce this because I'm not a Greek um, scholar, but Lethe, and uh, the, that's the river of oblivion. So um, and these drugs, of course, have a profound history. So um, that's, what the, that's what replacement opioids do. And that's huge, but it's rarely enough. Now, occasionally, there's a person for whom it is enough. This is a person, let's say, for whom the withdrawal was so, or the avoidance of withdrawal, was such a powerful engine for continued use that once you took care of, as a clinician, you know, once we basically treated the withdrawal, the person had enough social capital, enough, hadn't, you know, just had enough of a, a social network to be able to get back on his or her feet just with a medication. That happens to be rare in my experience, but it would happen. And in that case, I would say the person fit the medical model more more uh, snuggly. But in most cases, um, in fact, uh, 
I, I, we think of addiction, or we, I say we, because Scott Lilienfeld and I have written about this quite a bit. We think about it as, as operating on many different levels simultaneously, obviously on the, the neurological, neurobiological plane, but on the psychological one, on the behavioral one. It's incredible how important cues can be, can, how important conditioning is in perpetuating drug use and, and also in treating drug use. Because, of course, one of the first things you try to get to patients to work on is identifying the kinds, of, the kinds of situations, the kind of internal mood states, the kind of people they're around that get them craving. And that's a pure Pavlovian phenomenon. And that's part of cognitive behavioral therapy for addictions to get people to recognize these things. And sometimes they're obvious. You don't drive by your dealer's house. <laughs> I had a, a knew of a school teacher once who had to wear, um, it could, had to get a, a, what do they call those things? Like a marker board as opposed to a chalkboard because, because a chalk dust reminded him of c- cocaine. Right, right. Wow. So, so what is the role of AA in kind of framing our beliefs around addiction? Because there's this, I mean, there's this model that specifically an alcoholic is somebody who is irretrievably suffering from a kind of disease. And once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you know, I, I actually don't have direct experience with AA or addiction, but and so I, I may, I may be getting it slightly wrong in terms of uh, just how they place emphasis on this, but what's your view of the role AA has played in all of this? And in what sense is addiction a disease? And in what sense does that analogy break down? I actually don't consider AA the source of, of uh, what I think is a problematic medicalization. I, I attribute that to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and we, we can get back to that. But as far as AA is concerned, interestingly, in the, in the early 30s, it mm. did not use the word disease. But, uh, but in any case, if you look at the 12 steps, there's so much about, uh, they do have a spiritual dimension to them. There's, there's a big emphasis on the so-called moral inventory. Not moral as in, if, as in you're a morally flawed person, or that addicts are morally flawed people, just that just that in many cases, so many, I'll use their word, amends need to be made. And uh, going back to, I suppose, what Johan would, where I agree with him, is that so much addiction flows from, from so much personal unhappiness that you want to also go back to the origins of why you even became addicted in the first place. So, um, so I find AA, uh, I, I, I personally have trouble with you know, right. a higher power. I don't quite understand that, and I don't understand the surrender when, in fact, you're doing all the work. So that, because they have that in one of the steps, I surrender my will, I believe. In any case, there seem to be paradoxes, but the point is so many millions of people have found it useful. But as far as it being a disease, I I mean, I think if you took a poll, the majority of Americans see it that way. And I, I try not to debate it, and I do make a different a distinction between disease, which is somewhat metaphorical, and a brain disease, which reifies it much more as a physiological problem and a physiological problem almost only. But um, when people say to me, and very, I found this very interesting in this small town I'm working mm-hmm. in, in Ohio, that a few of the um, nurses and social workers have said to me, 
yeah, they kind of lower their voice because they know they're being a little politically incorrect here. But, you know, do I, do I really think it, you're a psychiatrist? Is addiction really a disease? And I like the fact that they ask me that question. Now, if there were some crusty old sheriff, you know, who just wanted to lock people up and didn't want his, his deputies to be administering naloxone, you know, the, the, uh, the overdose reversal drug, and didn't want to be bothered with these folks, that would be a whole different discussion. And there I'd say, yes, it's a disease. Because my, my usual response to that question is, what are my choices? Right. Because my choice is, is that it's a moral failure or it's a sin. Well, then I'm going with disease. But I'd like to be able to be more nuanced about it. So, uh, so when, I, when I've had these conversations, I, I, I'll just stipulate if some people, some, for some people, it's very important to embrace that disease model. For others, less so. But I just say, so if addiction is a disease, then, then it's more, most important for us to say, well, what kind of disease is it? Because unlike one of the many slogans uh, one hears lately, addiction is not a disease like any other. And that's important to know. And I, I'll get into that in a minute. But I would like to say that I acknowledge why the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is responsible for this brain disease formulation, uh, and so many other advocacy groups endorse that, that I do see the virtues in it. I understand that they were trying to, you know, wrest it out of the realm of criminal justice. And I'm all, of course, I endorse that. They wanted more funding for treatment and research. And those are completely laudable goals. They think it can uh, erase stigma. I don't believe it can. And there is uh, a lot of interesting research, some of it by uh, Nick Haslam, as an Australian uh, cognitive behaviorist and others, who have shown that the more you medicalize a behavior problem, actually, the more you increase social desire for social distance on the part of others, and the more it induces a sense of therapeutic nihilism. And there's um, also mm. research showing that patients who endorse a brain a disease model for themselves actually don't quite do as well because there's a sense of a, a, a loss of self-efficacy that goes along with that. But again, these are studies, and every and as, as a clinician, you deal with everyone on a personal level. To be honest, Sam, it never comes up when you're treating someone. These concepts just never come up. You just deal with how do you put one foot in front of the other, mm -hmm. and and you know, and one of the what are the skills you have to use to, to uh, stay, uh, you know, to stay clean? And then at some point, people get enough sober time, abs abstinence time, where they can start exploring, if they're interested, what are some of the kinds of problems that preceded their drug use in the first place, because some of those vulnerabilities still exist and, and put them at risk. But we don't do, you know, classic depth psychotherapy. We're not getting into childhood traumas mm -hmm. or or primitive events, because those are anxiety-provoking. And that's the last thing you want to do who, for a person whose habit has been to look for a drug when they feel anxious. So for many years of, of uh, therapy, I'm not saying people have to be in therapy for many years. Like hopefully they internalize a lot of these, these skills for themselves. But the effort is very much pragmatic and, I would say, cognitive behaviorally based in terms of therapy therapy. And then in terms of rebuilding their lives, you know, again, vocationally, getting their kids back if they've lost them, getting jobs back, get, regaining trust, uh, establishing a healthy social network, these kinds of things. 
But that's interesting. So the classical talk therapy, you're saying in this case, certainly in the in the acute stage after cessation of drug use, is counterproductive because just just kind of endlessly taking an inventory of all of your past suffering that may or may not explain how you got here just produces the the negative mental states that people want to self-medicate away from in the first place. Exactly. And some patients have said to me, well, you know, shouldn't I be talking about, (laughs) because they see a psychiatrist and they have this, because most people in the addiction world are not treated by psychiatrists. They're treated by counselors or social workers. But I'm the psychiatrist, so they, you know, maybe they have Freudian images, I don't know, but, and they say, maybe I should be talking about my childhood. And then I explain just what I said to you. I explain to them and they say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I say, that, that's a luxury you'll have after you've been, you know, after you've, after you've, you're stable for quite a while. If you still feel that's important to you, then you, you know, can pursue it. And luckily they, they seem to, you know, accept that. And of course they're free to go to someone else who will do that with them. Although I think most people who are sophisticated about working with uh, people with drug problems would not do that kind of exploratory work in an early stage. Mm. Is it simply an empirical fact that people who kind of cross some line into a clear substance abuse pattern can't then go back and, you know, let's take alcohol as the normal social lubricant? Is it possible for someone to become a a, quote, healthy social drinker after having had a problem with alcohol? Or is the AA model of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic a, a fair description of um, the, the No, that, I would not say that's, that's fair, although it's very common. Certainly, it is probably not a good idea for someone who's had a severe alcohol problem to uh, attempt moderate drinking. Presumably, they tried that along the way. However, there is a group, right. and it's, I, I think it's legitimate. It's called Moderation Management, and it does have membership, and, and it has a, it's, there certainly is a subpopulation of, of individuals who, who can return to controlled drinking. As a clinician, by the time they get, see, by the time someone gets to a clinician, you have to remember there's so many layers at which people have peeled themselves off. I mean, let, let's take the situation of uh, two people who go, they seem to be matched on almost every variable. And they're both curious about like what, let's say cocaine, because most people have, I suppose, experienced alcohol. But they, um, there's, they're going to a party and they know there's going to be cocaine there. And they both say, look, we'll make a pact. We'll both try it, see what it's like. And one of them tries it. And his reaction is, eh, which is actually most people's reaction the first time they try cocaine. And most people's reaction the first time they use a heroin is they throw up. Then the, but the other friend tries it and says, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Now, that's very interesting. And, and that's why I think more biologically oriented folks stop. And, and frankly, you could build a whole career on figuring out why are, why are those reactions different? And I think they're mediated, you know, through neurochemistry differently. But now here's another scenario where these two friends, two more friends go to a party. They know there's going to be cocaine. One of them tries it and says, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Give me more. And the other one says, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Get it the hell away from me. And that is a, that's very interesting. So that's someone who peeled off at the very first step. Then you have people who peel off in terms of quitting use. After they've used a few times, 
And, you know, they came home late and their wife gives them a dirty look and she says, what have you been doing? And they don't think, okay, I don't want to go down this road. Well, you can see where this is going. Then there are people who lose their job or about to lose their job. And they think, wow, I better get it together. And then there are the people I see who, despite so many of these consequences, uh, didn't quite get it together. Now, there's always one consequence that brings them in. And why that one and not the one before is the alchemy of addiction. I don't know why. There are too many variables. Because everyone who's walked into our clinic practically is there mm. because a spouse is going to leave them, a boss is going to fire them, or a probation officer is going to violate them. And that goes to one of the reasons why I find the brain disease formulation, which, which privileges so much the neurobiological level, why I find it problematic because it takes our eye off, off several other levels of, of, of explanation, one of them being that addiction is a, a behavior that responds to consequences. It responds to sanctions and incentives. And so right. if you read the early papers, in fact, the brain disease was officially unveiled in 1997 in an article in, in Science, the definition why it was a brain disease is I kid you not, because addiction changes the brain. Well, this conversation changes the brain, so that's absurd. Yeah, well. But, but you could everything, then more everything generously changes the brain, say, yeah. well, okay, in what way does it change the brain? Does it change the brain in which people have no choice but to use or but to continue to use? And we know that's true just because of what I told you, because people, because there's an enormous literature on contingency management which is how you manipulate the incentives and sanctions to help people stop. And one of the most fascinating, I'd say if I had to sum up all of addiction science in one, in one vignette, it would be the Vietnam veterans um, experience, which I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, this was um, 1971. And I remember the New York Times in the, fall, in the spring of 71 reported on the Department of Defense research on all the veteran, all the GIs in Vietnam that were addicted, addicted, not just using, but addicted to opium and heroin and really good high-grade Southeast Asian stuff. And that's no surprise in a way, because what, what, what is war? It's, it's terror and boredom. And what are drugs good for? <laughs> terror and boredom. Plus there was, this was Towards the end of the towards the end of the war, and there was so much demoralization and such a sense of betrayal by so many that there was just a simmering rage that a lot of these men had. So drugs worked for that. Drugs were totally normalized in the um, military at that point in Vietnam. They were abundant. So every possible every possible variable that lowers the threshold for using a drug was there. They had access, it was normalized, it was good quality, and they had a reason for using it. Well, uh, Nixon was terrified, and there was already a heroin problem in the urban centers, and he was afraid that these men would come back and, and just seed that population even further of heroin users. So he instituted a program which just has the best name in the world, Operation Golden Flow. And as you might guess, basically it said, uh, you know, for those of you whose, whose uh, year is up, 
whose tour of duty is up, you're, you, you will not be allowed back in the States until you pee in a cup and there's nothing in it but your pee. And actually, once they were told this, the, the folks who were, you know, about to leave, the vast majority of them were able to stop using on their own. Uh, they did offer some treatment in, in Vietnam for those who, who had more trouble. And then they, and then they left. Now, these uh, GI, well, now veterans, were followed by Lee Robbins of Washington University, who wrote a paper uh, that were, in which she said, this has blown, the title of it or the subtitle was something like, this, the data I'm about to present now blows out of the water this once, uh, once addicted, always addicted meme. And what she found following these guys for three years was that very few of them resumed use of heroin. 12% over a three-year period, the majority of those who resumed use had a prior use, uh, in other words, a use that predated their deployment, and that the reason, and she interviewed many of them, a uh, subset, and they said, well, you know, we, we had lives to live now. We're back in the States. We have families. We have responsibilities. If we wanted to continue to use heroin, we'd have to go into you know, these terrible neighborhoods. Now it's easier. People will deliver. But you know, and it was, of course, it was totally stigmatized. And, there, and, and, and that, to me, is the full spectrum of so many of the dynamics that are involved with addiction. Yeah. Well, the context clearly matters to context a, a remarkable is huge. degree. Yeah. Yeah. What do we know, though, about the behavioral genetics here? I mean, is it well understood that there is a, there are a gene or, or genes that govern a person's susceptibility to falling into addiction regardless of context? I'm not a genetic, a behavioral geneticist, so, but I'm, I'm going to say that whenever you're in the realm of behavior in humans, it's rare that one gene is responsible. So everything and most things in psychiatry are highly polygenic, but I have yeah. no doubt that there are some people uh, whose circuitry is, uh, and, and it's genetically built so that they find they, their reward system is more sensitive, sensitive uh, that they have their locus aureus is much more attuned to the withdrawal phenomenon so that it's, it's, it's much less tolerable that um, and we have impulse. Of course, there's the issue of impulse control. I mean, one becomes a highly steep discounter in the course of being an addict. Some people are steep discounters before they become one, and that probably predisposes them. But it's usually a, it's usually a combination of many, many, many yeah. things. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, so-called adverse childhood experiences predispose, but they're all predisposing. And one could argue, for example, that if everyone in your family were an alcoholic, to the extent that anyone might use that as a justification for why they became an alcoholic, one could just as easily say, well, you saw what it was like, you, you know, then it was your job to not drink at all, something like right. that. So it could, that can also go both ways. Right. So now on the, the spectrum of difficulty in kicking an addiction, where do these various drugs and substances lie? I mean, can you generalize about how hard it is to get off of heroin versus the, the pharmaceutical opioids that people are having problems with now versus alcohol and, and anything else? 
Well, as far as opioids, this, a lot of this is uh, obviously dose dependent and and uh, and often a route of uh, administration dependent. But uh, it, it, if you're it could, conceivably it could be as hard to get off opioids, uh, prescription opioids, especially if you've crushed them up and and snort or injecting them as heroin. There should be no mm. probably no difference. Interestingly, nicotine is considered the most addictive drug, but uh, that is highly conflated with the fact that smoking itself as a behavior is addicted, addicted, highly addictive, mm-hmm. arguably more so than nicotine itself. The ritual of it and the social the aspect ritual of it. it. Yes, the social aspect of it, but also the fact that um, there's talk about context. Of course, it's hard to. Of course. The uptake—it's called capture. The capture rate for nicotine is is about one in four. In other words, if you start smoking with some regularity, they will probably continue to smoke with regularity. Whereas mm. with heroin and other drugs, it's more like you know one in ten. Why would that be? Why would it be? It, it looks like when you hear a capture rate is one in four, you think, "Wow, that must be highly addictive." But think about the context. Nicotine is legal. I mean, in the in the form of cigarettes. Nicotine is ubiquitous. Admittedly, cigarettes are much more maligned, you know, nowadays and for good reason than they were, but still. uh, And nicotine, and this perhaps is one of the most important aspects, it's not an intoxicant. It doesn't affect your performance. If anything, it might enhance it in some ways. So that the consequences for using, for smoking, are so much less and so much less immediate. And that's, that's very important, too, because of course, you can get lung cancer and devastating diseases, but they're so delayed, whereas yeah. the consequences for intoxicants come much sooner. So all of these play in to the fact that someone would sustain their use, but that's over and above the base addictiveness of nicotine itself. And that's also why cigarettes are so hard to quit. And that's been misconstrued as nicotine being one of the most addictive drugs in the world, but that's not true. And, and where does marijuana fit in here? Do you, is there an addictive component to it, or is there is is there some other category of compulsive use that shouldn't be categorized as addiction? Actually, the physical yeah, the physical addiction, the physical withdrawal that I explained before that you get from opioids, that you get from alcohol, you would get from barbiturates, you could would get from benzodiazepines like Xanax or withdrawal. Those were considered uh, the hallmark of with- withdrawal. But ever since cocaine, ever since the 80s, that's been downplayed as an indicator of, of, um, of addiction because, because cocaine and the stimulants don't have that kind of physiological picture. I mean, they have their own right. discontinuation syndrome. There's no question. But uh, so some drugs have that and some drugs don't. I, I have to say I'm not that expert in marijuana. I, I do know that uh, because the potency is so much greater now than it was when I'm sure we were maybe a little older than you, but I think we were both, you know, well, when we, we were in We probably college, had the same so, marijuana, though. Yeah. So, so much of this, I mean, back to the concept of capture, it really matters when you start. I can't imagine there are many people who are just taking up smoking in their 40s and 50s and then becoming smokers. It really is a... a phenomenon of teenagers or at least you know people in their 20s acquiring the habit and then getting captured. But that's true of any, most drugs start, you know, around then. So, yeah. 
So anyway, that's um, very interesting. That, that the, the nicotine thing is extreme. I mean, this is a whole other issue. But as you know, there's so much debate now about Juul and e-cigarettes and, and teens. And one of the biggest fears is that uh, it'll be a gateway to nicotine, a gateway to smoking, which would be a disaster. But uh, this would be a whole different another show. But I, I mean, if you go through the literature with a fine tooth comb, and you have to do it with a fine tooth comb because. So much that gets into press releases and, and even the way some of the papers are written kind of suggests in some cases there may be gateway phenomena. In other words, you start with um, e-cigarettes, you become a smoker. Um, the bottom line is those don't hold up. I'll just say one of, the, one of the things that many of those papers don't look at, they only look at, let's say, an on-ramp phenomenon. In other words, who started with what and who ended up with what. And a gateway theory uh-huh. in general is is kind of complicated because it really means but for x i wouldn't have done y and how can we ever know that i mean people there's a third variable of risk taking and kids who vape may well have gone on to smoke anyway but it's important that kids don't smoke no question and it doesn't appear that e-cigarettes are increasing that because smoking levels in teens continues to go down I did mention off on ramp though that many of the studies mm. will look at that. You know, they'll look at the directionality. Oh, this in wave one we saw these kids who were vaping and now they're smoking, but they don't look at the kids who were smoking and now they're vaping. And those off ramps tend to be more robust than the on ramps, and so that's a good sign. And that may be one of the reasons why smoking in kids has continued to go down. Mm. Well, so actually, I wanted to ask you to, for just practical advice here because I know many people listening. You know, if they haven't had problems with substance abuse themselves, they may, you know, very likely know someone and even someone close to them who does. What advice do you have for people dealing with friends or family members who are in the grip of of a serious addiction? I mean, you know, obviously, this quite famously, uh, these relationships and interactions are fraught with deception and every behavioral quirk that addiction is correlated with. How do you recommend that friends and family members approach this problem when it's somebody who's you know, fairly close to them, who they feel some ethical responsibility to, to help? So let's stick with um, opioids, because with fentanyl, now that's hmm. a highly potent synthetic, it, it largely trafficked from China, that's... Um, 50 times more potent than heroin, that's, today, that's what's responsible for the vast majority of the overdose deaths. Right. And, and so the, just to close the loop on that, so there, there has been a, a major spike in overdose deaths a, yes. as a result of fentanyl? Fentanyl is what's killing those people yeah. now. And uh, right. that anyone who, who, so if your friend or loved one is struggling with opioids, just run out and get naloxone right now. You just have to have that. You can get it. Most pharmacies, I believe, sell it over the counter. I'm pretty sure they do. A lot of public health departments give it away, or you can buy it. So that's the overdose uh, reversal. And you don't have to be an EMT to do it. It usually comes with, uh, there's an auto-injector form. Now, that's incredibly expensive. So, But then there is also just something you can spray. You can just spray in the nose, and that's what you should use. So, But that's sort of basic. It's, Lissam, this is tough. We hear a lot about patients, we hear a lot about there not being enough treatment in this society and, uh, you know, in our 
country, and and that is true. Our treatment infrastructure is is not good, although there has been a lot of effort in Congress to enhance it. Many people will say not enough, but there is work on that. But I see often the flip side, which is people who don't want to come to treatment or people who will stay for a short while and drop out. And the dropout rates as a clinician being on that side of it is one of our biggest problems, is people who won't stick with it. But nevertheless, that's, of course, what you should try to get this person to do. Again, if they're injecting, make sure the needles are clean. I mean, that's the harm reduction approach where the basic premise is just keeping you alive. You know, which is just that's the best we can do at this moment to just keep a person alive. But hopefully, the, you know, um, the standard can get higher than that, which is, of course, helping them improve their, their life. And so you just, you know, you can bring them to treatment. There are NA meetings. Uh, people who have drug problems can go to AA, AA meetings as well. Uh, some AA meetings are more or less hospitable to people on medication or people on methadone. They're becoming much more enlightened about that. I'll tell you, one of the best things that can happen to people, this may sound shocking, but is if they are in an enlightened county, and that's a big F, where they get arrested for shoplifting or something, they go to a drug court. You know, that, of course, reminds me of one of the, there are a number of mantras in the addiction world these days, and one is we can't arrest our way out of this. And I prefer to say we can't Mm. incarcerate our way out of this. I, I see no value in incarceration. But when someone commits, you know, a crime, of course, not a violent crime, but a crime, you know, they're citizens, too, and they've wronged someone and they are in the criminal justice system. But I believe then we do everything in our power to divert them. That's the word. Uh, Diversion means to either not go to jail or not to be adjudicated in the traditional way, but go to a treatment program. So these are court ordered Mm -hmm. treatment programs. And with usually with the carrot at the end of um, expunging the record. And people can usually get their records expunged, especially if they know about it, if the, if the program doesn't do it automatically. And, you know, when this is done well, it can be quite effective. You have the leverage of the judge. These are judges who are very involved. They meet every week. They're almost, they have a therapeutic mentality, some of them. In fact, these are called problem-solving courts. And, uh, and they use mm. that, um, they take advantage of the virtues of uh, sanctions and incentives. And it really is a, a page right out of Behavior 101 with swift, certain, but not severe consequences. So if someone does, for example, you, you know, hand in a urine that that's, has drugs in it, there will be some sort of consequence. It won't be severe and it'll be immediate. And people are quite responsive to that. And it seems to work. I mean, I have a theory that it works better for people with, who aren't stimulants. There is a, uh, was a, there's a program called the Hawaii Opportunity Probation and Enforcement Program, Operation Hope. And it started in the, um, gosh, the mid-2000s, I think, with a drug court judge whose caseload or docket whatever, was almost exclusively methamphetamine users. And he had extremely good results. His, his probation officers were trained in, in uh, relapse prevention therapy, and he met with these people, and he was so very interested in their lives. It was very moving to hear their, ex- their exchanges. These judges are really devoted to these folks. 
and his results are very good. Now, we're waiting for good results on, on drug courts now that deal with opioid addicts. And I don't know how, I mean, we're still waiting. There's a lot of variation in mm-hmm. these drug courts, how good the judge is, how attentive he is, how in the timeliness with which these incentives and sanctions are applied. And that's so important for behavior shaping, you know, as you know. But these can change people's, you know, lives being getting arrested for something and then being in these 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 drug courts. So I think the criminal justice system has an enormous role to play here. But but through the lens, hopefully, you know, leveraged as a, a form of therapeutic intervention as opposed to pure punitive. Mm. Do, do you recommend that friends and family members who perform interventions follow a similar logic? I mean, is there the the analog to a swift and certain consequence there, or a carrot and stick approach to behavior modification. How does it? What What are the dynamics there? It, it's so hard. Well, let me just mention for people who are really interested in this: look up Craft K. Excuse me, C R A F T. I don't know what a community reinforcement. Forgot what the acronym is, but that's largely for families, mm. and it it tries to thread the needle between the tough love abandonment which is something that now is just, it's very risky with fentanyl out there because, you know, if you say this to it, look, if you have other kids and you're, uh, you know, one of your children is drug involved, it's, it's, it's heart wrenching, but you have to make a decision. And some parents, and I, I understand they feel they've had no choice. They've offered their kid everything and the child just keeps using and is now bringing, you know, needles in the house. And they say, listen, we've given you choices. You, You have to leave. I I can I sympathize with that. I understand why where they where that comes from. But with fentanyl, it makes that so dangerous. That's where the uh, naloxone comes in and all this. But but craft is something mm-hmm. that tries to help parents kind of walk a line between this. You know, we we're trying not to abandon you. We we know want you to know we're always here. But it's uh, listen. You know, a lot of parents do that, and it works. I mean, a lot of parents just say. <laughs> You're punished. You're not having your cell phone, but we don't see those kids. And those are the kids, you know, those kids, you know, comply. You try to, as best you can, try to try, if you can, to change the uh, social network that your inner child is with. Uh, It's so hard to, you know, once parents get into a cycle with children where they're resentful and they're, um, and maybe they have good reason to be resentful. Maybe they've had difficulties at home, but, but they can't break through to them, try to enlist some other family member who may seem to have a better reputation, not a better reputation, I mean, a better relationship with them. Or This is all very, very mm-hmm. difficult. I wish I could give you a prescription. I feel like I'm rambling here a bit. It's just... No, no, it's good to get, get the, uh, the landscape. It, it's hard. It's really hard. And one of the things that, God bless these mothers, there are so many now mothers who are, have lost their kids and they are on call for these parents. They are on call for family members. Mm. Beth Macy wrote a book called Dope Sick. I have little questions about the way she sometimes described the disease process, but she captured brilliantly how devastating this is for families and how it's mobilized so many parents. Um, there's a group called Shatterproof that I don't think they're finished yet, but they are about to have a report card on the quality of these treatment programs because some of them are not as good as others, but I'm sure people could be in touch with them and, and, and get advice. So there are, there, you know, there are these possible, you know, options for getting advice, but it's very tough. Yeah. So, so tell me about this 
project you're, you've undertaken to spend a year in a Rust Belt town working as a psychiatrist, is that, are, are you focused on addiction in that town or is, or are you, uh, is it more, a more general practice? Uh, it's addiction. It's psychiatry. It's a little town in Southeast, uh, Ohio. It's part of what's called the tri-state area, uh, which is, uh, well, there's actually, there's an East coast tri-state area and that is Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia. Uh, and part of that tri-state is Huntington, West Virginia. And people who follow this issue will probably remember Huntington, who, who unfortunately has a reputation of being a town where in 2016, 26 people overdosed in one day. Luckily, only two of them died. But uh, And I know the mayor very well now. He's a wonderful man, and that town is really mobilized mm-hmm. to... Uh, what happened? What explained 26 people in, in one day? Oh, fentanyl. Okay. Fentanyl. Yeah. yeah. These batches, um, and some places there is car fentanyl, which is thousands of times more potent. And these synthetics from China, I mean, this is one very scary element of this whole situation is, you know, one, once one drug stops coming, another takes its place. And we're seeing methamphetamine start to layer on top of, of heroin and fentanyl now and in some places displace it. And that's a little bit of what's going on in, in down there. Anyway, so, but for a few years, I tried to do something called locum tenens, which is something any doctors who are listening will know about. It's, it's basically a kind of arrangement where you work in a someplace else. You know, you fill in for a doctor who's, who's left or on a long vacation or sick, and you work in that practice for a while, up to a year, maybe a month, <laughs> some variation, and then you move on. And some doctors have actually made this their whole career. But I thought, you know, here I am in D.C., and we certainly have an addiction problem. I have to say pills had almost nothing to do with it. It's a totally different picture. The average age in our methadone clinic is 57. Mm. These are old school heroin addicts. They've been shooting since, since the Carter administration, a lot of them, mm. that they are dying at higher rates because of fentanyl. But the Oxycontin story doesn't really fit in here at all. It fits in big time in rural Appalachia. And so I'm in what's called North Central Appalachia or Rust Belt Appalachia. And, and I thought, you know, there are half the counties in the United States don't have a psychiatrist. And uh, so maybe I could be helpful in these places because I'm in a big city and we, we do have psychiatrists. And mm-hmm. so I tried to do a locum tenens thing and never, it just, the logistics never worked. And I kind of gave up. But then I uh, actually contacted J.D. Vance, um, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and I said, is there some place in Ohio that basically could use a psychiatrist for a year who's interested in helping, you know, with the addiction situation or general psychiatry or general psychiatry as well? And he found me this wonderful town. And so I've been there since September. So that, yeah, so I, I wanted to, you know, of course, I just wanted to be helpful because I know there's such a lack of manpower, although uh, they have been doing quite well with their nurse practitioners. Some telemedicine, there should be more telemedicine, but some, I've met some excellent counselors there. So I'm impressed with their little workforce. But I'm also very interested in the sociology of the town. And mm. in fact, that's kind of intrigued me even more, I have to say. I you know, grew, grew up in New York. I, I was always at a, um, I mean, I went to school at Cornell. That's a small town when the school empties out. But it's, it's very urban in a sense as a microcosm because it's a major university. So I've never really lived in a, a small town. And it's, 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 
you know, as you can imagine, it's extreme. It's very different. It's got to be Trump country, right? Very much. Yeah. And highly yeah. religious. I, um, I'm actually a Jewish atheist, which I, <laughs> I become best friends with these Baptist couple. And uh, so I've gone to church more in, you know, four months than I've ever, well, I've never gone to church before. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I'm so fascinated by this, um, I personally can't quite grasp the dynamics of belief for myself. But it is so, so deeply, so profoundly, it's their, well, it's their life. And my other friend is, my other good friend that I've met is a um, Episcopalian reverend, a wonderful woman in in her 70s, highly vital. I I think a little left of center, her sentiments seem to be that. And um, so I'm just trying to grasp this, but uh, they're wonderful people. and. And so uh, that is, so I think where that fits in, though, to my experience clinically or in the clinical domain is that so many of the people who are doing the treatment and who are running the social services, remember, the scale here is small, but the people here are so, they're so dedicated. I, I'm so touched by it. And, and a lot of them see it as a calling and a lot of them see themselves as, as servants. And I mean, in that biblical sense, and they are just doing magnificent work. And I come back, I'm in DC this week, and I just went to our methadone clinics, and I I love our staff to death there, but the dynamic is just so different. You're in the midst of this DC bureaucracy, which is enough to make you use heroin. I mean, it's just, it's just horrific. Mm -hmm. Um, The turnover in the clinic is so high. The micromanagement from the DC government is ridiculous. The Medicaid rules, some of them are ridiculous. And, and down there, they, I don't know, I think they're nimble enough to, to get through the bureaucracy when it exists at the federal level, because there's, there is Medicaid and they've made their own bureaucracy, which is pretty damn flat. And the main institution that I'm working with is called the Community Action Organization. And I'll tell you, when I first heard of it, I thought, oh, that's, that's nice. It's a coalition of you know, social service agencies. But it turns out that the Community Action Organization or the Community Action Program was a, an integral part of the war on poverty. And in 1964, LBJ was very devoted to that program. And the idea, I mean, and one existed in every county in the country, was anti-poverty effort. And it failed miserably. And it failed miserably in the urban settings Within about two years, he walked away from it because it got so politicized. Its, it's, its main virtue was supposed to be local mm. involvement. And in the big cities, that turned into uh, racial, it was a lot of racial tension. It turned into a social justice project. And the mayors were highly resentful of, of folks getting so much power. But in this small town, and I think in other small towns, it didn't work that well either, but not because of the inner city dynamics. But, but in Ironton, Ohio, it's a triumph. And, uh, and I'm just lucky enough to be working with one who's run by this wonderfully dynamic man. And um, again, uh, C.S. Lewis, I get quoted at me all the time. And, and a religion pays a large role mm-hmm. in, their, in their worldview. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got to think you're talking about the power of context. The context of a small town where yes. your reputation is known or will be known more or less everywhere versus a a vast city where you can just disappear into anonymity when just by turning the corner 
I, that's got to play some role, right? Yeah, but it's more than that. I'd say, yes, but I'd say, well, then you have to figure why is the opioid problem so big? That certainly ruins one's reputation. But right. you no, know, it's the fact that everyone's one degree of separation. You have to have someone in your family who's an addict or who's poor mm. or who's um, not a, or an alcoholic or something like that. So I, I think I think that's where the I think that's the more potent aspect of the small the small scale and this. And, and, and also the fact that, frankly, there's a lot to be said about a charismatic leader. I mean, not a Jim Jones, of course, that's, that's the dark side of charismatic mm-hmm. leaders, but the inspired and, and honest charismatic leader, which is the guy who runs this uh, CAO. And the fact, all you have to know is this one fact about this Ironton Lawrence County Community Action Organization. In 54 years, it's had two leaders. I mean, th- that's incredible organizational stability. Mm-hmm. You spoke in passing about the politicization of medicine and where medicine becomes conflated with a social activist paradigm. And it reminds me of what the APA just did to their guidelines around masculinity. I, I'm sure that has crossed your desk. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, maybe maybe tell people what happened there. And then let's just talk for a few minutes about this this larger phenomenon where a an ideology that is really, to its roots, political, gets weaved into medical and, and psychotherapeutic recommendations. Right. You're referring to the, uh, I don't have them in front of me, but the title is something like the American Psychological, not American Psychiatric, Guidelines on mm-hmm. um, Therapy with Men and Boys, something like that. And and I'll, st- I'll start with the good. I mean, there were some good things in there. It had good advice that fathers are important um, to their children, that dad should spend time with their boys. I mean, involvement in sports and other kinds of constructive things. All positive. Of course, it makes you wonder, do you need to be told that as a professional? But in any case, but then it veered. It, it did have a, a serious veering into what I would call identity politics which was, uh, you know, a lot about the patriarchy, um, this, Im- this impression that a man, almost masculinity, manhood itself had uh, toxic elements. Now, I have to tell you, if you read the whole, if you read the press release, you go, <laughs> the, the, the press release distorted this uh, document terribly. It did mm. a great disservice to it because it made it all the work. It took everything that, that was what I would consider problematic in this document and magnified it. It concentrated, just took all the, took all the flashpoints about boys being rapists and most of right. the cultural pathology is due to men and uh, we have to re-educate our boys. And, uh, and, and that was very, very destructive. When you read it, you know, some of the things aren't, some of the things aren't, aren't quite so bad. They're just simple sociological facts. But others... To me, what was most problematic, and this is what I had written a piece about it, as, along with every, everyone else, but, but actually I took the point of view that um, it wasn't so much the content as, as the assumption that we, we should not approach therapy through the lens of, of any kind of group identity. And uh, that, in fact, psychotherapy is the ultimate personalized medicine. You know, it's the ultimate intersectionality. You can't get any more right. atomic than the person. And everyone is, you deal with them as individuals. So, of course, there may be 
situations where you have a patient who's struggling uh, with difficulty accepting his homosexual son. Of, Of course you might. But then you deal with that, with that individual. So so I was critical of it because it came at therapy from the standpoint of the group. And I think that's very damaging. And in fact, there's, there's a history to that. There, and this takes me back to that book I mentioned a while ago, PCMD, because one of the chapters was on so-called multicultural therapy. And this is a very real thing. It's been, it's at least two decades old. And in that chapter, I remember highlighting something that was um, in operation at the University of California in San Francisco. Oh, excuse me. Oh, right. At San Francisco General, but I believe it's under the umbrella of the UCSF Medical School, I think. And um, now this was years ago. It may have changed, although recently I saw an allusion to it, so perhaps not. But in any case, if you were admitted as an inpatient at this hospital, if you were Black, You went to the black unit. You went to the black psychiatric treatment unit. If you're a woman, you went to the woman's unit. If you were an Asian and and so on. Of course, white men just had to take beds wherever there were. This was, to me, utterly pernicious because the underlying underlying and stated uh, premise of this was that much of your mental problems were due to the fact that you were an oppressed minority. If you're working with a patient, and I'm not saying people as individuals huh. don't encounter or, or, you know, people who are black or women or don't encounter discrimination and aren't reacted to in, in some contexts based on their identity. And of course, that's destructive to them and, and highly distressing. And maybe that's why they seek help, because they want to deal with the frustration of that, the depression they've now developed, whatever. My job is not to say that. Well, I, I could certainly, I try to reaffirm people's reality when I can, if I do know for a fact what goes on in their world. And a lot of times you don't, you just have the person's self-report. So you have to take that at face value to the extent that's what's highly distressing to them. But the whole point of a psychotherapy, as opposed to a therapy where someone is hallucinating and you want to deal with symptom management or so cripplingly depressed that you want to, even considering you know shock therapy, this kind of thing. But the essence of most psychotherapies, I, I think, is to help people see how they're sabotaging themselves. Now, sometimes they're in a situation where they are just, they are just stuck, and it's, it's really tragic. But you try to explore all kinds of outlets with them about you know, ways to modulate their, or mod, modify their environment, how to deal with the situation while trying to change it. But the last thing you want to do is reinforce their status as a victim. I mean, even if they are really subject to, for I just saw a patient today who's, this may not sound like classic victimology, yeah. but the poor man who lives in public housing, and it's, it's absolute hell in D.C. Some of these public housing projects, they're dangerous. There's no privacy. I mean, he lives in fear of his life, and he has no choice but to live in that. I mean, he's tried to get out. He's applied. I mean, how do you help someone when they can't, when they are stuck, and there's so much learned helplessness then as a result of that, how do you work with that? It's very, very difficult. But I wouldn't be helping him by making him feel like more of a victim. And with people who have much more promise than this this poor gentleman who's almost 70 and and he's disabled. So I think, and sadly, his situation is kind of not going to change. But when you're dealing with people where they're 
are other options. Um, the last thing you want to do is reinforce their status as a victim. Yeah, yeah. And when you just as a counterpoint to that, when you would just picture the the scene in the in the quad at Yale with the the mob of uh, students, you know, howling at Nicholas Christakis over the the Halloween email. I mean, that level of fetishizing of victim status. I mean, that is seeping into the culture in all kinds of ways. And I mean, maybe maybe we're already part of a pendulum swing away from it now. One hopes, but right, they don't want mental health professionals uh, to reinforce it of all people. Yeah, it it just seems it seems you know terrifying that that it would be the lens through which mental health professionals would be viewing each individual's problems. I mean, so far as you as you want to encourage agency in in anything that can be behaviorally affected by what someone chooses to do, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. I mean, in addition to just at the level of the the press release there, it seemed to paint a picture that there was no, whatever was potentially normative in a man's life, it consisted of finding some asexual expression of masculinity, like the traditional masculinity with you know st- norms around stoicism and caring for the, the family, all of that, there was no healthy version of that. All of that was you know, basically a culturally sanctioned psychopathology. Yeah, right. I was going to say, I considered kind of a, I think that some parts of it were, I, I'm being a little histrionic, almost malpractice, but yeah, a very destructive document taken and in its with its most florid aspects. But you, you know, when I I became sensitized to victimology when I worked at I worked at the West Haven VA. That was part of my residency and then I was a faculty there for at, at Yale West Haven VA for, for five years. And 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 actually that was kind of the beginning of my it's what motivated me to put one foot in the policy world because I ultimately moved to a think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. And um, I'm glad I spent those years at the VA. It was fascinating. But, and a lot of clinicians are much more sensitized to this now in, in VA systems. There's no question about it. But at the time, you know, this was the 80s. And, and remember, PTSD hadn't, that was introduced into the DSM in 1980. It wasn't even a diagnosis before that. Of course, it was a phenomenon before. There was been shell shock and soldiers nerves and and you can find writings from the Peloponnesian mm. War on what we'd call PTSD but um but it wasn't an official diagnosis so it was its history is that it is it's kind of a hybrid of a, of a clinical phenomenon and a uh, a political statement because it was largely it was promoted most vigorously by anti-war psychiatrists i mean self-avowed anti-war psychiatrists robert J. Lifton and Chaim Shatan, I believe, who was a psychoanalyst, and also some feminists. So it, it was partly I think, put, it kind of enshrined as an official diagnosis, kind of to mark the, 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 how dangerous war could be as a social phenomenon, and also how dangerous domestic violence can be to women. And that's not illegitimate from a, on a social socially, we know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, I'm just saying, it helped propel it into the, the DSM. But it's also a, a very legitimate clinical condition as well. But what, what tended to happen at the VA was that everyone who had been in war, everyone who had been in Vietnam, whatever befell them when they came back, whatever they were suffering with, struggling with when they came back, was immediately attributed. It was almost like there was 
before war and after, your life was completely telescoped. There was life before this event and after this event. And everything that happened to you afterwards, everything you Mm. did afterwards was then seen in the light of your war experience, which is which is as bad as seeing everything in the light of identity politics, because again, that's not necessarily true for everyone. And and so that was that was highly problematic. We have people who you know, had, had tra- problems that had nothing to do with their war experience. But again, it was all seen through that lens. They, then they were encouraged. They were given the diagnosis. They were encouraged to get disability. They then got on the disability that took them at payments, that took them out of the workforce, uh, which, and you know, work is one of the best therapies there is. It's socializing. It's organizing. It's, uh, uh, you know, if you don't work, your confidence erodes, your skills atrophy, right. it, it's a sense of purpose, it's modeling for your children, it's almost everything. And it took these guys out of the workforce and it was so, everyone meant well, but it was so, so poisonous. So yeah, P- PTSD got to be very problematic as, as a diagnosis at, at the VA in the, at that time. And remember, in the Vietnam War, only 15% of all men saw combat. I keep saying men just because, obviously, the fighting forces were men. But uh, only 15% saw combat. I mean, a nightmare for those 15%, mm-hmm. most of them. But, uh, and, and then another percentage were in dangerous jobs. Like driving a truck was dangerous. You could be ambushed. You could drive over an IED. So I'd say that was a kind of job that could put one at risk for you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. But uh, not all our patients, and some of them weren't even in the war. You know, they were Vietnam era. But, um, but we got all caught up in the primacy of post-traumatic stress disorder and how it had warped people's lives. And, and sometimes it did. There's no question about that. But then the last thing you want to do is get people into this cycle of invalidism, which you just reinforce with payments because, again, they leave the workforce. So. I mean, hopefully the VA now, one hopes the VA is considering a situation where they would begin to separate the Mm. clinical. They have two, sorry, let me back up. Let me back up a tiny bit. You could walk into a VA and you can still do this and say, I think I should be on disability. They will, that's called the Veterans Benefits Administration as opposed to the Veterans Health Administration. And all are under the Veterans Administration. And the Veterans Health Administration is very separate from the Veterans Benefit Administration. So you could walk in, you could, they will have you see a clinician, but it's a cross-sectional exam. Frankly, you can look up PTSD in the DSM so you know what to say. And, uh, or, or let's take a case where someone truly does have PTSD, which is probably more common than someone faking it, although that is, that is an issue the VA grapples with. But some poor man or woman who was in a horrible situation and is very fragile and thinks they, you know, doesn't see Mm -hmm. a future for themselves, thinks they'll always be psychologically crippled, comes to a disability agent and says, I, I, you know, I I can't function. I, I've, I've been in combat. I've been, you know, from a lot of the women that's raped, you know, in service, terrible things. I think I need disability. And and the disability officer, this is his job. He's not doing anything wrong, but, if, you know, he will proceed. And to me as a clinician, I'm thinking, my God, that's like someone being in a car accident. And Sam, you've been in a car accident. 
I visit you in the hospital. Here's your wheelchair, Sam. This is what you're going to be in for the rest of your life. And you're thinking, where's my physical therapy? You know, where's my surgery? What the heck? It's an outrage, in my view, to put people in a disability pipeline before they've ever been treated. And the VA, uh, that happens. To, to, To say someone is disabled in the clinical realm, that's a prognosis. That means for the foreseeable mm. future, you are not going to be functional. Now, it could be that in the immediate future, or even a year or two, maybe you're going to have a lot of problems, but we are going to work like hell to make you as functional as possible. That's the goal. And, and the number of us have been trying for a, a long time to try to work with uh, folks in the Veterans Affairs system. And there, are a lot of these individuals we've interacted with I've worked with this wonderful veteran named Daniel Gade, who'll be having a book out soon on this issue, I think. The people we've worked with are, are really sensitive to it. They know it, but it's very hard to, it's, for politically, it's, it's a third rail, you know, trying to reform the disability system. It's so hard with the veterans groups because they feel threatened. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to that, too, that they don't want their mm-hmm. disability touched. And clearly, this would be a process that, no one would be, everyone would be grandfathered in, but you can see how sensitive this is. Yeah, well, clearly if it's mistaken for an effort to save money, right, we don't feel like paying you disability, and that's that's the motivation, it's easy to see how it would be a kind of third rail. But if it's framed as you just framed it, what you want is the most effective treatment available, and if staying in the workforce, if you at all can, as part of treatment, I mean, that, that seems like it should be a pretty easy argument to get across. I mean, I guess in a, the perfect case would be if the incentives could be such that there was no antagonism between actually getting disability payments and working, right? So that you know, like a, in, in a world with universal basic income, if we ever get to such a world, we'll have to confront this directly. I mean, what, what do people do that is just like work in all of its virtues in a context of abundance where work isn't actually required for survival. I mean, that, that is something that, you know, if we play our cards right, we'll have to figure out how to navigate. Yeah, th- I can't answer that, but I can say one of the things we could do better in addition to uh, requiring that people be in treatment before we even consider disability, you know, put all that money up front, like the best rehabilitation, the best therapy. And if you have to right. go inpatient for a while, sure, we'll pay your family. Sure, we'll pay, you know, we- we're not trying to, I would approach it as no one's trying to save money here. We'll probably spend more if we spend it all up front. But, uh, but again, putting the emphasis on, on getting people back to functioning. And also, even before that, there's a very, a very fragile period, like right after someone, that transition, the homecoming period, that's also very fragile. And when people can feel terribly dislocated, and there's often not enough support then. And that might avert the whole next step, which is even walking into a, v, you know, a VA looking for disability. But everyone's aware of this. I'm not saying anything new, but getting it to happen is it's difficult. That's all very interesting and hopefully useful to people. Um, before I let you go, I realize we're, we're coming up on 90 minutes here. It will seem like a fairly random segue, but I know there's a topic that you are an expert on of sorts. And it's just the, the, around the ethics of organ donation. You, maybe perhaps you can tell our listeners why I would be asking you such a question. Oh, sure. 
Yes, I'm very uh, uh, radicalized on the organ topic. Yeah, and I've had two kidney transplants. I had one in 2006 and another one in 2016. And I, I, it was one of those so-called idiopathic um, situations. Um, I don't have diabetes and have, you know, very high hypertension or lupus or, you know, polycystic kidney disease, which are actually diabetes and hypertension are the two main reasons people have kidney failure. But mm. I did. And, uh, and this is a part of the story scares people to death because, uh, you know, they always say blood pressure is a silent killer. I didn't even know I had a problem until I went into a doctor just for a routine checkup. And uh, blood draw, you know, a basic blood draw can show your creatinine levels, for example, are, were very high. And the fact that it was very high, but I felt fine, meant that this had been going on forever. Because, you know, you can lose 90 to 95 percent of your organ function in terms of, mm. let's say, your, even your liver, you know, your substantia nigra when it comes to Parkinson's. You lose most of it. But then there's some tipping point, and that's when you become symptomatic. Uh, because there's so much reserve in these organs, and I hadn't been symptomatic, but I, <laughs> but I knew mm. I I knew what happened. I went to medical school. I knew that at many of their dialysis, uh, which all right, you just scared well, everybody. Keeps people going. There's no question, <laughs> but it's largely hell, and um, or find someone to give you a body part. So, so I went on that odyssey, and uh, and it was very difficult. Uh, ultimately, um, and I bet a lot of people who listen to your you would probably know the name, but a woman named Virginia Postrel, she, who I wasn't even that close to, heard from a third party that I needed a kidney, and she sent me an email. The subject said, subject line said, serious offer. I heard you needed a kidney, and I'll give it to you if I'm a match. And thank God she was, and that was a happy story. But it was difficult finding her, and it, the whole situation made me think, why is it illegal to buy an organ? So that's how I got very involved with this whole notion of co organ compensation. And I'm not talking about a classic free market. Um, there's, only one, there's only one country that has legalized organ sales. It happens to be Iran. And it has a strange hybrid program where the, 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 the provinces subsidize and then the actual donor pays as well. That's not a, that's nothing that my colleagues and I have been talking about, but we've been promoting this for a long time. So why can't we, you know, tax credits, tuition vouchers, contribution to a, a 401k account for a potential donor, a stranger donor, or, you know, here's 50,000 that you could give to a charity. You know, the idea is to not make the donor, or excuse me, the recipient, the one who has to buy it, make the effectively the government or some third party, the purchaser. I say that with big scared quotes around it. Uh, so that everyone who needs a kidney would be eligible, not just people who could afford it. Mm -hmm. And for the potential donors, you know, you'd build in a uh, probably a year-long waiting period, because what what don't what's what's the worst thing that can happen is 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 someone who's desperately poor rushing into this kind of thing and then regretting it. Someone poor and sick rushing into it is never going to get through. <laughs> the clinical screening. So we don't have to worry about that. It's just because they'll be ruled out as a donor because they're right. not healthy enough. But someone, you know, desperate who's running, rushing into this, you don't want because you don't want anyone regretting. It would be awful if you regretted giving a kidney afterwards. So you build in a waiting period and lots of education, lots of clearly informed consent. And, um, you know, that's basically the plan. You could have an income floor so that, uh, 
I don't prove that I don't want to discriminate against poor people who would like to who would like to receive some sort of incentive for help saving someone's life. But that's one model. But anyway, these are the kind of plans we we've, we've written about, we've we've talked about, and I've run up against the institution called bioethics. And I have found that uh, not all of them, but uh, mainstream bioethics is very hostile to this idea. And um, it, it's been a it's it's been a good fight. Mm. But what what's the best argument you hear from bioethics against this position? Well, there are two arguments. There's a sort of the Leon Cass, Michael Sandel kind of argument, which is the arguments from corruption, which are basically it's wrong. It's it's just wrong. The body should be inviolate. You shouldn't commodify the body. I'm sorry, I can't say this with as straight a voice as I'd like mm-hmm. because I'm so contemptuous of it. But mm-hmm. that's what they will say. Well, I, I can't speak for Sandel on this point, but this is Leon Cass who thinks there's a moral dimension to the sacrilege of licking ice cream off an ice cream cone. You know, it's that the cat-like tonguing of the cone represents some kind of desecration of traditional values or a degeneracy in, in the public space. You know, he's got disgust issues and uh, a very active anterior insula, I would imagine. I, I, they may be part of it, or he finds it de- degrading. Now, I have to say, in fairness, that Leon mm-hmm. was my colleague here at AEI, and he is just right. a lovely man, a beautiful writer, and someone who really will engage with anyone. And we, so we've, we've uh, very, very politely disagreed, and, and I do disagree with him profoundly on this, because it matters more than eating ice cream, my God. And um, you're right. So the arguments from corruption boil down to, even though no one is harmed, it's wrong. And then there are the arguments from consequence or the utilitarian arguments, and, and, and none of them are persuasive to me. Now, people raise issues that are uh, important. For example, what do you do with a person who rushes into this? Well, that's easy. We build in, we build in a waiting period. That's one of their issues. What do you do? I'm trying to think of some of their other arguments. Oh, it will be most attractive to minorities. I don't know why this is an argument. Well, I guess, so, I mean, I haven't thought a lot about this, but it it strikes me that it puts an especially fine point on the problem of wealth inequality, right? So it's like like wealth inequality is, is a problem that most of us recognize is just humming along in the background all the time, but we can sort of ignore it. And, but yet it's, it is just a fact that people are obliged to spend their time, even most of their time, in ways they wouldn't otherwise want to spend it because of the need to earn money to survive. And people who are more fortunate have the freedom not to do that. They they have the freedom to pay people to do the things they don't want to do. And people who are, who are more fortunate still don't have to do anything. They can retire, and basically every moment they spend in life is discretionary. This is just the status quo that everyone tacitly accepts. But when you add something like the prospect of selling organs, right, and then you you just imagine people who really do need money and are incentivized by the prospect of earning it in ways that we've accepted, right? I mean, they're emptying cesspools or you know whatever they do that most of us wouldn't want to do, and and. Presumably, someone would only do it for the money. But you, when you put donating your your organs on the menu of things you can do for money that you wouldn't otherwise want to do, it's easy to see how people feel like, okay, this is we're now in some kind of dystopian novel, which should be avoided at, at, at any cost. 
Yeah, I know. I, I do. I understand what you're saying. And, and when I talk to someone like that, I say, well, you know, I, I do appreciate that. I, then I say, you mentioned wealth inequality. When I mentioned health inequality, in a sense, in that the diseases that are the most uh, responsible for renal failure and hence aff- afflict uh, are, are diseases that afflict minorities dis- disproportionately. So that's who's on that's who's on uh, dialysis. It's it's the poor and poor minorities who dominate the uh, who dominate the waiting list. So um, you'd be helping, frankly, someone who's you know who's also got a very raw end of the stick, but a different end. And uh, right. so that's who these organs, frankly, would be going. Most of the donated organs would probably be going to minorities because people with more let's say, higher socioeconomic, we don't have trouble. I had trouble because I have a very small family. I'm a little unusual. God forbid you needed an organ. I'm sure mm. your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your, you know, you'd have, it's, it is the more disenfranchised folks who have, who have the difficulty. So, so they're, they're suffering socially in their own way. And then I would say, well, let's, I mean, if you're a, a kind of, uh, my libertarian friends uh, would say this is, what you're making the person if they want to participate, because of course they don't have to, is better off. Now you're giving them some financial security if it went into a retirement account or it could send their kid to Catholic school, you know, right. private school. So, so what, what is the status of the, the opt-in versus opt-out for organ donation with respect to like the, what one puts on one's driver's license at the, at the DMV? It's been a while since I've had to renew my license. Did that ever get flipped to opt-out versus opt-in? No, it's still opt-in. You would not need Congress to change that. That's a state-by-state. Um, I think states could do that. And there there have been efforts. Uh, it's never been done. I am not mm-hmm. against such a thing. I'm skeptical. It would make a difference, a, bi- a big difference, or maybe a tiny one at the margin. Isn't there data on that? Yeah, Spain is usually held up as an example. And Spain is, they do have a very, they have an excellent deceit cadaver transplant uh, system there, where they're very good at retrieving organs from deceased. And they do have a high rate, and it may be the highest rate in the world, of deceased donation. I'm talking about living donation, but uh, deceased, of course, opt-out is deceased donation. But when they started this, when they started their program well over a decade ago, they changed so many other things about the infrastructure of the system. So there it was hard, like so many, you know, natural, natural experiments, it's so hard to tease out what the variable was. But then you look at other countries that have opt-in and it doesn't, it didn't make a big difference. So, I mean, I'm not against it. I'm only against it when people, and I'm, you weren't saying this, but some people have put it forth as the answer. Because, you know, not that many, surprisingly, not right. that many people right. die in such a way that their organs are used. It might not produce all that many organs if everyone <laughs> that was opted in actually happened. Plus, there are what's called soft opt-ins where a family can, can override. But I'm not against it. And I'd love to see a, a really good study of it where only one variable changes, which is that, you know. But... Uh, Listen, we're going to have to wait for, um, you know, printed organs, yeah. for xenotransplantation, which will, I have no question that's the future. And I bet your grandkids are going to say, my God, people gave people organs? You know, I can't believe that. It'll seem so primitive. But we'll be printing them. We'll be growing them in pigs. I know this will happen, but not right. soon enough to save thousands right. of lives. 
Well, listen, Sally, it's been fascinating. It's really been an education talking to you. So I, I just thanks again for coming on. And before uh, I let you go, is there any place online or on social media that you want to direct people to pay attention to your work? Well, I have a website called sallysatelmd.com, and it's all there. And I thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.